Thank you for those prayers, uh, Pastor Brenda, and good morning, church. It is good to be with you uh, today as we worship God together, whether you're here in person or online. Um, those that are coming in, there are seats in the front row. The front row tends to be the last place that fills up um, at church, but we welcome you to it um, if you're looking for a spot to sit. We continue in the Kingdom Now series. This is actually our last Sunday of the Kingdom Now series, and it has been one that I have enjoyed. Pastor Brennan and I have enjoyed teaching, and um, it's been great to hear the stories of how you've been engaging and wrestling with this incredible sermon that Jesus gives, the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we look at what is unseen defines everything, and um, yesterday we had the funeral um, for family and um, the Monday Ladies Life Group and a few others for Joyce, and what was unseen in her life shone brightly yesterday. And we're going to unpack a little bit of what Jesus is getting at in his teaching today about foundations. Some of our journey, and Pastor Brenda talked about some of that journey last week, but Jesus gives some of his most challenging teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about forgiving again and again and again, about loving your enemies, about not judging, words and teachings that are very difficult to do. Most of the sermon is fairly easy, actually, to understand. It's not, oh, what does it mean to forgive, right? It's not, oh, I wonder what it means to love my enemy. It's not easy to do. It's easy to understand but not easy to do. And so last week and this week are really the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus' time to apply this, to conclude it, to invite a response, and we're going to look at this final bit today. Um, so let's dig in um, to what Jesus is teaching, Matthew 7, 24 to 29. It's on the screen. It'll be in your bulletins. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with the great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So the rock and the sand, you know, Pastor Brenda last week talked about the narrow and the wide gates, and just as that was misunderstood, the rock and the sand were misunderstood. I can remember in Sunday school, any of you old enough to know flannel graphs in Sunday school? The Sunday school teacher would have this felt board and these cutout pictures, and they would put them on as they were reading the story, and I can remember the images of what were put on the flannel graph when I was a kid, and the person who was building on the rock was, you know, a hard worker, he was industrious, and he sort of did all the right things, but the person on the sand was a pagan, was a non-Christian. He was taking the easy way out. He was relaxing by the beach, and in the, in the background, you see the person working hard, 
on the rock. And there was this idea that Christians are built on the rock and non-Christians are built on the sand, but actually Jesus is talking to his followers here. Both the rock and the sand are followers of Jesus. That's the thing we get to wrestle with today. So what is Jesus saying? Let's unpack this a little bit as we dig in. So you have this image, the one who hears these words, right? And puts them into practice is the one built on the rock. Jesus saying, if you hear this and you do this, you are living in eternity already. Your eternity is secure. You have begun living the kingdom now, right? Jesus says, your kingdom come, my will be done. This isn't some future thing in the future. It begins now. He says, your eternity begins now because you are not just hearing it, but you are doing it. See, rabbis in the day would have debates about what was more important to hear or to do. So Jesus is picking up on that theme As he concludes this sermon, he drives the point home. The rabbis mostly settled on the fact that it was more important to hear versus the doing. They figured if you didn't hear it, you would never be able to do it. So Jesus picks up on this and he goes on to say, the person on the sand, they have heard it, right? But they have not put it into practice. When the storms come, when the waters rise when the winds crashed, it will not stand. The storms in our life, they could be trials, they could be tests, they're going to hit both houses. But Jesus is also referencing sort of this final sorting, this final judgment. And we don't get a lot of scriptures on what that judgment will be. We see Jesus later talking about the sheep and the goats We get small hints in Revelation about that. But we do know that we are not the judge. We are not the ones to sort. God is the one. And I'm glad that God is the one who will do that because he is a loving God. We don't get to decide who is on the rock and who is on the sand as much as we might be tempted to. That's above our pay grade, if you will. And finally, the passage concludes with this amazement, right? They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. He wasn't referencing other teachers or other philosophers. He was basically saying, you can know this is true because of who I am and how I live my life. Look at my life. See if this measures up. That's a challenging word. And we can hear that word as well as Christ's followers. See, he calls us to be disciples, to be his followers, to learn how to walk in his ways, to depend on others. to be a people that can survive the storms with a foundation intact. In my early journeys of faith, I knew in my heart that I needed something beyond myself, that I could not save myself. 
And I saw Jesus is so important for that process of entering faith. But I didn't grasp how that foundation got built. I thought that foundation is up to me. Jesus has done his part. He was on the cross and now he saved me. And now it's up to me to do this building. And I misunderstood. And we're going to unpack a little bit of what this looks like, how to build that foundation as we go through. Let's pray. God, I pray that you know as we read these words, as we hear these words, God, you will speak to the places in our hearts of, of not just thinking on this, but of enacting it, of embodying it, God. May this be a starting point for us today. May your spirit work in our hearts to transform. In your name, amen. So to be clear, the sand, the sand foundation is hearing the word, right? It's Jesus' teaching, but it's only hearing of his teaching. You know, if we hear a good sermon or a bad sermon, um, we read scripture, that there's a certain um, help that, that reading scripture, of hearing a sermon can do, but it's, it's really not the point, is just to hear it, right? Not to think, oh, that was an interesting idea. That's making me thoughtful. That's a start, but it's not the finish line, right? It's just the beginning of what God wants to do. The rock foundation is hearing and doing, of putting this into practice. But here's the thing, who sees the foundation? Right? God does. The foundation is hidden. The structure can be great. We can look at it and go, wow, amazing house, amazing structure, amazing project that we did, amazing church, whatever it is that looks impressive, but, but actually we don't see what the most important thing is. A few summers ago, um, we were vacationing in California. We were in the San Francisco area. I was at a coffee shop in the morning drinking coffee, and I was reading a story about this tower. This is the Millennium Tower in San Francisco, and I don't know if you've heard about it, but... It's a newer skyscraper, 58 stories of residential building, famous people moving in there, and just one problem. It's starting to sink. And I didn't know buildings had a certain amount of sinking they anticipated. Apparently for this building it was five inches, which is worrying, but the problem is, is it's sunk 17 inches, and it's beginning to lean. This is modern-day construction, folks, and there's a major problem because of that, and they're still trying to sort out the fix of it. See, it looks great, but the problem was they've now discovered they only went down 90 feet for the pilings. Not deep enough. They had to go actually 250 feet to reach the bedrock. It's going to cost over 100 million U.S. to fix the problem. See, we can look at a great tower and say, wow, it's amazing, and have no idea it's a disaster underneath. We can look at our Facebook feed, our Instagram feed, what we portray to the world. We can look at smiling faces. How are you doing? Great, wonderful, everything's great. Covering up what is underneath. Covering up what we know to be true about ourselves. 
We can do that in our business world. We can do that in our church world, right? Look at that church over there, and we can begin to compare. I wish <clears throat> I looked on the outside like that person did. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's a personality, maybe it's a church, maybe it's the size, maybe it's the growth, maybe it's the numbers. We can look at all of these things and go, oh, and we can be tempted to portray that to the world too, missing the most important thing because Jesus says, I am not impressed. I am not impressed. He cares about what is underneath, what is holding this up. By the world standards, if you were to assess Jesus' ministry at the time of death from any metric, we'd probably say failure. He's got three, maybe five followers after three years of full-time ministry, 33 years of life. And not just any ministry. I mean, he's raised people from the dead, right? He has healed people. He has performed miraculous signs, and at the end, his ministry had three, maybe five, and one of those is his mom. I mean, you can always count on mom, right? <laughs> of course, we know that was not the end of the story. He rose from the dead, said, look at my life, see if this is not true. Those that betrayed him, those that abandoned him, became the very people that would give their life to follow him. Jesus' point is, if you look to success the way the world does, you will be looking for the wrong thing. In undergrad, I was um, in a class that we would visit various churches in the Chicago area, and we went to lots of big churches, some small churches as well. We were at this very big church. And they had had some troubling things in their community, and there began to be things that would leak out about really spiritual abuse that would be happening in this church. And so we went, we attended, and I got into conversation with somebody afterwards, and um, was trying to be gracious, but you know, asked him about some of what was happening. And he said, can't you look around and see? Look at how many people we have. God must be pleased with us. That, to him, was evidence of the foundation. This very story, right? And we can be tempted to do the same. The foundation is the most important, but the least seen. Our hidden self, the part of who we really are, who we are developing to be, very few people get to see. Maybe nobody gets to see the most important thing about us. See, if we live for affirmation and praise from others, we don't really need to spend too much time on what they're not going to see because we don't see the value of it. Jesus says it's in this secret, hidden reality that we begin to construct who we are and our identity and our character. C.S. Lewis says it this way, we must lay before him, Jesus, what is in us, not what ought to be in us. I'm in this uh, men's group of other pastors in the Asia area, and we meet once a month online. And the ice-breaking question um, this past week was this. Three levels of vulnerability. The first was, what is something that everybody knows about you? Okay. Second level, what is something about you that maybe 
only your close friends will know. The third level was, what is something in your life maybe nobody knows, or maybe one or two people know? This was the icebreaker. <laughs> it was like, okay, we're going deep diving here. But this is the thing. We need to be able to get at this foundation. We need to be able to get at what is unseen to the world because it's what God cares about. We have a temptation to hide, to run, to, to go the other way in the face of our struggles. We see this with Adam and Eve in the garden. They hide from God. He comes looking for them. He wants to meet them in their place of need. Dallas Willard, um, his book, Divine Conspiracy, is really an unpacking of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been a great resource for me um, as we've been going through this series. But the subtitle there is Rediscovering Our Hidden Life in God. It's all about how do we cultivate that foundation, right? He says, the idea of having faith in Jesus has come to be totally isolated from being his apprentice and learning how to do what he said. It's not just hearing, but learning how to put it into practice. So how is God involved in our transformation? How is he involved? How do we let him into this? I was looking at a study of the transformation process. Of course, I care about spiritual formation and discipleship, and there was this um, examining of the theology of people that were in a 12-step program looking to get freedom from some of the things that, that hounded them. And they, they identified three different theological views. The first was, God will deliver me. It's all up to God, right? God will deliver me from my struggles. And sometimes this is how we come to Christ initially. It's deliver me. I cannot do it. But that doesn't make a great discipleship strategy if it's all on God, if we've handed over any attempt to work on ourselves. The second is the opposite of this. And sometimes it's what we do after we've come to faith. Okay, it's up to me now. Jesus has done his part. Now it is all on me. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to come to church every week. I'm going to attempt to fix myself. Now our effort matters. But God's grace, his Holy Spirit, is just as important in the growing process as it is in the coming to faith process. The third way, the most successful way they found people going through 12-step programs was actually this idea of collaborating with God, this idea that we work together with God. It's not all him, it's not all me, but actually we join with him in this process. We humble ourselves to allow him to work. Now, I wasn't going to mention Midnight Mass again. Some of you have watched it based on what I said before and are shocked that I would watch such a show. Some of you have loved the show, and I won't name names about who that is. But there's a key character in there who goes through a 12-step program. And in that process, he realizes he is powerless to change himself. He struggles with the faith in God, but he knows there's something out there that he needs. And as he steps into those steps of transformation, he begins to become transformed. There's this co-working with God, this co-laboring with God to bring our transformation. See, it's this journey of accepting our acceptance, of coming to accept that God accepts you and loves you. And I'm just starting to discover that. 
And you begin to walk in that transformation in that daily journey. So yes, reading your Bible is important, right? Going to church is important. Serving is important. These are all ways that God works with us, but we must understand it's not all on us, right? And it's not all on God. There's this co-working together that God works at us in the process, in the hearing, and in the doing. When we hear, I need to love my enemy, God is working with us. When I'm actually trying to love my enemy, God is working with us. He will work with us the whole time if we open ourselves up to him. So we hear and we do. Jesus could not be more clear in this passage. Here's the problem, though. As, as easy as that is to understand, and, and maybe we say, of course, hear and do. That's what this is all about, right? But I would say for the last three centuries, in the West especially, our discipleship has been Cartesian, has been Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's been shaped by the Enlightenment. We're having the very same wrestling that the rabbis did, which is more important, hearing or doing. We think we can actually separate those and still grow in our faith. See, most of what I inherited spiritually was focused on the mind, was learning more Bible, but not so much on the doing. That is insufficient. Learning the Bible is insufficient for our salvation, for our transformation. We can look at churches in the West to see how effective it's been <laughs> or not effective. As I look at the evangelical church in the U.S., they have especially been shaped by this the past 50 years. There's division. There's a lack of real transformation amongst the people Instead of their faith defining their politics, their politics are defining their faith. And we're not immune to this either, church. When we ask non-Christians what are their thoughts about Christians themselves, what do you think one of their biggest struggles is, one of their biggest turnoffs is? And I heard it this very week. Yeah, hypocrisy, right? We're not matching up what we are listening to or even what we're proclaiming. Our lives do not match up. That is our witness oftentimes to the world. Christians become known more for what they're against than for what they're for. Don't get me wrong, the hearing is important. If it wasn't, I, I wouldn't need to do this, right? But it's not enough just to hear. It isn't sufficient. Now, I don't golf, and um, I have attempted a couple of times, and, and just, no, it's not going to work. But some of you are golfers, and you can study the golf game, right? You can study what you need to do, what type of uh, golf club you need for the type of stroke, and that's a pretty straightforward process. But actually learning how to golf, to hit the ball well, consistently, it's a lifetime. It takes a long time. It takes practice. Reading a golf manual, if I said, hey, I'm a great golfer, I've read the manual, I, I could memorize the manual, right? I know it in multiple languages even. 
I'm a great golfer. You would say, what are you talking about? You haven't golfed one time, right? And yet with our Christian faith, sometimes that's what we can think. I, I've memorized all these passages and we think that that is what will bring transformation, but it is not. It's a lifelong journey. Information transfer is not the same as transformation. When you learn to golf, you're rewiring your muscles. You're rewiring the impulses in your brain. And it's the same when we begin to learn how to forgive, learn how to love an enemy. We are rewiring what's in there already that, that pulls us away from those very things. Two weeks ago, I, I spoke on not judging. How is that going? For me, <laughs> that very night I had an opportunity to, to judge. <laughs> and what did I realize about myself as I continue this, just working on one part of the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, I'm not going to judge. But then when I see somebody judging, then I'm judging. <laughs> I become a judge of the judgers, right? I've taken it to the next level of judging. And God's like, come on. It's practicing that golf swing, right? It's a step. It's a start. And we keep taking steps. God isn't looking for perfection, but he's looking for humbleness to go, you know what, God, I still have so much to grow in this judging. It's... it's it's not saying, I've got it all figured out, right? I've removed myself from that process of learning as soon as I do that. It becomes more easy to judge other people. See, when we hear and we do, we live as Jesus lived. We open ourselves up to transformation. So when Jesus says, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, forgive and keep forgiving. When he says, don't treasure money, do not judge, we can actually become the type of people that live that way. Do you believe that, church? We can actually become the type of people that do that through Christ and the Holy Spirit. This is my heart for our church, that we would be a people that is loving God, that is loving people that loves doing good, that we could be in this humble posture to God of dependence going, it's, it's this partnership with you, God. You love me. I accept that love, and I'm wanting to love other people better and better. I'm wanting to be involved in doing good in your world. So when the foundations are revealed about who we are as a people, as a church, as individuals, what will shine brightly is not hypocrisy, but God's love. What would shine brightly is that we welcome everybody into community as Jesus did. What would shine brightly is that we're authentic and we can say, you know what, I'm still wrestling through this. I still don't know how to overcome this judgmental attitude that there would be an authenticity to us and not faking it. That each day, one step at a time, we become more like Jesus. That's the journey I want for us, church. That's what God can do to us and in us and through us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a good God, that you meet us in this very place that we're at, and that you want us to follow you, God, to hear and to obey, to hear and to follow, to hear and to try, God. And Lord knows we will fail, but let us not stop trying to follow you. 
We'll bring our efforts, God. We'll bring what we have in us. But we know we need you in that journey as well. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. In your name, amen.